heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. This is Healing the Whole Person on WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio. Hi, I'm your host, Bonnie Quirk, and I am delighted and honored uh, to be interviewing uh, Philip Lawler. Uh, Philip Lawler is the editor of the Catholic World News, the first English language Catholic news service operating on the internet, which he founded in 1995. He is also the program director for the Center for Restoration of Christian Culture at the Thomas More College in New Hampshire. Uh, Mr. Lawler has a bio that is so long that if I, I took into account, uh, we probably wouldn't get to our, our subjects. So, uh, Mr. Lawler, if you feel at any point you want to add to your bio, uh, please do in the course of our conversation and we'll work in, I, I think we can work in your extensive bio throughout our, our interesting interview about the summit, which was recently concluded on Sunday. And I would ask, uh, what is your view? Do you think the summit was a success in terms of what it set out to do or an absolute failure in doing anything? Well, um, the good news is that I think it was a success in what it set out to do. The bad news is it set out to do the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. it, mm -hmm. it was really a public relations exercise, uh, and it was designed not to, uh, to produce concrete and effective action against uh, the sex abuse scandal, but I really think it was to delay that action, to, to provide people with the impression that something was being done, uh, and so ease off some of the pressure on the Vatican to do things. But in fact, there was nothing concrete that came out of it. Were you able to be there? Were you a, uh, an active participant in Rome during the summit? No, no I was right here uh, at my desk. I was just um, answering phone calls from people who were there, asking me to help them understand what was going on. What do you think our next step is? Where do you think, where do you think uh, we're going with this whole issue, which still many Catholics don't understand? They understand superficially, perhaps, that there's a problem or they're angry. Uh, at their bishop, which isn't hard to be, um, but where do you where where do you think we're going from here? It's very hard to tell what's going to happen next. I think we're we're in a situation that can't possibly stand the way it is. Something's got to give, and I think more and more lay Catholics, particularly in the United States, are angry. They are frustrated, and they are going to be demanding more um, of their bishops, and that pressure is going to be relayed by the bishops right up to the Vatican. It's not quite so far advanced in other countries, and I think that's part of the problem, that in Europe the, the scandal has not produced the same sort of anger and frustration in the laity. So 
this may be a situation where the American Catholic laity has to take the lead in in prompting a very necessary overdue reform within the church. Do you at this time see any church leader uh, in the hierarchy stepping forward uh, to perhaps uh, lead the faithful or lead the sheep into some kind of laity action? Uh, or do you see anybody within the clergy uh, rising up to take the lead within their own ranks so that these these problems are pressured from within and the laity can pressure from without? There hasn't been a whole lot of leadership at the level of the bishops, and that's been my greatest disappointment coming out of this meeting in Rome. Uh, the agenda was set in advance, and the agenda avoided all of the most important issues. I was really hoping against hope that some of the bishops, at least one, would be bold enough to stand up and say, look, this this can't go on. We must address the issues that are at the of the matter, and we can't continue to avoid them. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. I'm, I'm still hoping that we will have enough American bishops who make those demands, and that that will come out in the next few weeks, and, and that could uh, provide at least some impetus. But I, I'm still convinced that most of the energy is going to have to come from Catholic lay people. Do you have a, a particular suggestion for our listeners on where the Catholic laity could be uh, most effective, uh, most educated, and uh, uh, what, what exactly uh, do you think the laity or leadership within the laity needs to do at this time? Well, there are two things that really need to be done, and the first is a whole lot of intense prayer, because ultimately this is a spiritual battle, and it will be won by spiritual warfare. So lay people really have to pray and pray for reform within the Church. And then secondly, on the practical level, not that prayer is practical, um, lay people have to start making demands of their pastors and their bishops. And by that I mean asking politely but very persistently to your pastor and to your bishop, if you can arrange to get to the bishop, when are we going to get a clear statement of uh, the need for and a commitment to the sort of reform that we need in the Church? When is the bishop going to demand that the Vatican open up the files on the McCarrick scandal, for instance? And if, if lay people talk to their pastors, and again, I, I emphasize uh, talk politely, but not, uh, but not back down insistently, then those pastors will relay the message to the bishops, and the bishops will eventually relay the message to the Holy See, and I think there's a very clear understanding among the American bishops right now that lay Catholics are angry 
and the more active they are, the angrier they are. And this is a, it's a absolutely volatile situation. And if the bishops don't respond to it, it will just continue to escalate until they have more problems than they know how to handle. I think that's a, a very interesting um, analysis. However, uh, personally, I am in the Archdiocese of Chicago, and um, I have been involved in the pro-life movement since before Roe v. Wade, a little bit before Roe v. Wade, and have found uh, it exceedingly uh, difficult to take that path with the bishops because uh, it, there seems to be throughout the archdiocese and especially right now uh, with the present leadership an inability for the average everyday Catholic who may be praying a rosary every day for the bishops but cannot get their message up the to the hierarchy because it's like there's a blockade. Like if you go to your pastor, he may say you're crazy, you know, or this really isn't a concern that we're involved in, or uh, you know, we have a a church of nice right now, and you're not being nice. Um, so. How do we, when we have a difficult situation within our hierarchical structure in our geographical area, how do we approach that? And how do we uh, promote what we're doing always in charity and always with intense prayer? But let's get over it. It's been many years and a lot of broken hearts and I'll speak for the right to life movement and a chastity movement a movement that has been undermined in many cases by the very same bishops we're talking about mm -hmm. so I guess I I gave you a number of of things and I would be most interested in in hearing how you would respond I, I wish I had an effective response. Um, I moved out of the Archdiocese of Boston because I reached a point where I thought I could no longer uh, even pretend that I was going to have an impact on changing things there, and that was 20 years ago. And uh, the Archdiocese of Chicago, I know, is in even worse shape. There are There are places where the church is in such bad condition that I honestly, I, I wish I could give you the, the magic formula, but I can't. I do think that in some such cases, it's perfectly justified for lay Catholics to tell their pastors, um, we, we recognize that we are morally obligated to contribute to the support of the Church, and we are going to contribute to the support of the Church. Uh, but you're not going to get the money until you do what we have every right to expect you to do. Uh, and if, if, if you're not going to clean up the church in this area, then we'll send the money somewhere else or devote it to particular causes that, uh, that we know are, are in, in accordance with the teachings of the church. I, again, I'm, 
I'm grasping, and I'm looking for some ideas myself, because we are at a crossroads. We're at a situation where it's unprecedented, where the lay people have every right to demand reform, and the reform isn't coming, so now what do you do? It's, uh, we don't have the option of leaving. That's not a possibility. We have. Uh, we need the sacraments. We need the the bishops and priests. So I'm frustrated. A lot of people are frustrated, and and uh, again, it's a situation that just can't continue. Something has got to give. I believe we're at a tipping point in the church right now, uh, and I see. I have friends who have left the church. Uh, they're so angry with the bishops that they've they've left, and you know your heart breaks for them because uh, again there's a misunderstanding there between the the faith and, and the the corrupt people who seem to be in charge and running the church right now. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? And and maybe we could go into for our audience a little bit about. Uh, Mr. McCarrick or former Cardinal McCarrick uh, just so we have just a, a, a brief educational um, maybe five minute summary of, of, of former Cardinal McCarrick uh, for the audience. Sure. Let me, let me just address your point. Um, what can we do? Again, I I think that the most important thing to do on an everyday level is to demand the truth. And one of the things that I think a lot of lay Catholics, like myself, have been prone to over the years is we see the Church falling apart in front of us. We see the decline in the number of people going to, to Sunday Mass, and particularly young people. And we see the Catholic colleges that are no longer teaching the faith. And we don't blow the whistle and say this is a crisis. It is a crisis. It has been a crisis for most of my lifetime. It's getting worse. Uh, and we can't allow for church leaders to paper over the crisis by telling us everything is fine and your parish is vibrant and, and we're all doing wonderfully. We're not. Uh, the first thing that you need to do if you're very ill is diagnose the illness and, and naming the illness is is not an act of dishonesty or disloyalty. It's the first step towards a cure. Now, you had asked me to to speak a little bit about Ted McCarrick, Uncle Ted, former Cardinal. Um, And this was a case that blew up last summer when it was revealed that um, an investigation had uncovered a a substantiated case in which he had molested a young man, a a boy under the age of 18. And when that came out, he's already retired. He had been Archbishop of Washington, D.C., and a cardinal, and a very influential cardinal. When that news came out, quickly there tumbled out all sorts of other reports that he had, in fact, fairly habitually been molesting seminarians in the Archdiocese of Newark when he was the Archbishop there. And this was known, uh, it was widely known among Catholic insiders 20 years ago. Uh, I knew it. 
Um, I had no evidence, so I didn't write about it. Uh, I couldn't substantiate it, but I had certainly heard the stories. And it turns out that the Vatican was alerted to this, at least by 1999, probably several years before that. And yet he continued his rise up the ladder of the hierarchy. He became a bishop, then an archbishop, then a cardinal, and one of the most influential cardinals. So you had a grotesque grotesque situation in 2002 when the American bishops instituted their policy against child abuse, and one of the people who was sent around to go on TV shows and explain it was then Cardinal McCarrick, who was himself an abuser. And I can, I just can't believe that there weren't dozens of bishops in America who knew about the stories, who had had the rumors about him, and still allowed him to act as their spokesman. There were people in Rome who knew about him and still allowed for him to get the red hat and be in the College of Cardinals and help to choose the next pope and also become very influential in um, naming who was going to be the who were going to be the next bishops in the United States. This is a man with tremendous influence who was morally corrupt and a whole lot of people knew it. So that was the sta- scandal that exploded. And then the secondary explosion came when Archbishop Colin Maria Vigano, who had been the apostolic nuncio in Washington, that is the equivalent of the ambassador for the Holy See, revealed that Pope Benedict XVI had instructed McCarrick to refrain from public activity because uh, Pope Benedict became aware of this pattern of scandal. And um, Pope Francis lifted that disciplinary action and allowed him to become, once again, one of the most influential cardinals in the Vatican, uh, in the Church. And um, and his, so his career continued, or rather resumed, despite a papal disciplinary action. That's, in a nutshell, the scandal that really drove so many American Catholics to the fury that we're now feeling. I also think, uh, in addition, uh, the fury that we're feeling were the members of the summit, who themselves, uh, many of them, uh, were covering up in their diocese. So it's almost like you have this layers of cake and you just get the frosting, but you never get to the real meat of it because they just seem to be a good old boys club covering up for one another. And how can they make decisions when they themselves are the actual perpetrators? So I think that that really uh, infuriated a lot of educated Catholics, um, Catholics who follow the political side of the church, if you will, as well as Catholics who are deeply and profoundly religious and maybe superficially follow the politics they've they've come on.
Scheidler, host of Pro-Life Today on WSFI Catholic Radio 88.5 FM. It's a half-hour conversation with leaders in the pro-life movement committed to protecting the most vulnerable among us. That's every Monday at 3.30 p.m. Or listen anytime by subscribing to our podcast. Visit WSFIRadio.org for more information. That's Pro-Life Today, every Monday at 3.30 p.m. only on WSFI Catholic Radio. Kristen Hawkins is coming to town. Speak Out Illinois is a coalition of pro-life and pro-family organizations in Illinois whose mission it is to promote issues at the heart of the pro-life cause. Speak Out will be hosting its annual conference on Saturday, March 9th, and Kristen Hawkins, founder of Students for Life of America, will be the keynote speaker. To register, visit our website at speakoutillinois.org or call us at 773-777-2900. Are you retired or near retirement? Do you want to keep a larger amount of your assets in a safe place with guaranteed interest rates to protect yourself from a huge market swing? Are you amazed at how low the interest rates are at your bank? If you said yes to any or all of those questions, you may want to call me, Matt Tomlinson, at Catholic Financial Life to discuss our guaranteed fixed rate annuities. Call 847-548-MATT, 847-548-6288. Products not available in all states. My name is Rich Wenzel, and I'm the director of the Institute of Christopher Leaders. In today's busy world, I think Catholic Radio is the best thing for us all. It allows us to hear what else is going on in our larger Catholic community. Whenever possible, I turn on the radio and be able to connect to other leaders around that I'm liking to hear what their viewpoint is and what they're doing. So my encouragement is Catholic Radio. WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio is committed to bringing quality Catholic programs to our local community. We only can do that with your financial support. Take a moment now to donate online at wsfiradio.org or mail your tax-deductible donation to WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. That's WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. Donations of any amount are greatly appreciated. Hi. This is Bonnie Quirk, the host for today, with my two co-hosts, Rosemary Simon and Susie McGinn, and we are honored to be talking to Philip Lawler. And I'm looking at your bio, Philip, and I I see that you have seven children and 14 grandchildren, and I'm sure it's for them. Uh, that you are so active and concerned about the church. I know you've written about 10 books. I think I've read a couple of them. Faithful Departed, I think, is, is the first one I ever read of yours. And then The Smoke of Satan. And we'll get into that, but I am so delighted that uh, you are taking your time and sharing with our audience uh, this crisis we have in the church uh, that we all want to see solved. Maybe not in my lifetime, but uh, we want it solved because the Bride of Christ is so important and Catholics uh, are under siege right now. I think you would agree at every level, at the pro-life level, at at family level, at at every level, and we need our faith now more than ever. So this is a, 
I, I look at, at this whole issue as uh, Satan moving into, as he does so well, the Diabao line, tear apart uh, the foundations of what we have believed for years uh, under the under the auspices of uh, our hierarchy who have not come clean, if you will excuse the <laughs> the the, the, uh, the expression. So, Susie, did you have a question? Uh, yes, I do. Um, Phil, uh, recently I've been reading uh, the biography of Mother Angelica, the founder of EWTN, and I, in that book, there was a wonderful quote from Pope St. John Paul II. And when he met with her years ago, he told her he believed that EWTN would be the key to saving the Roman Catholic Church in the United States. And I, for our listeners and for myself, what would you tell us and what should we tell our children and our grandchildren? Where can we go for the truth today? That's a really good question, and it's a really great uh, quotation that I hadn't heard before. Um, EWTN has done so much, and Mother Angelica, Mother Angelica did so much for the Church uh, that it's, it's hard to overstate it. Um, and something that I learned, I've learned in about 30 years of Catholic journalism, I guess it's more than that now, I'm getting old, um, <laughs> is that a lot of times you find the evidence of the power of the faith somewhere where you didn't expect it. You know, we, we see things on the, the statistical level, like the decline in mass attendance, and the decline in number of religious and priests and so forth. And we think, we tend to think, oh, everything is grim and there's no hope for the future. And that's wrong. There's always hope for the future. But, but, we have been trained to look for it in the wrong places. Um, the reason I say this is because I think Mother Angelica was the most unlikely heroine. You know, she had no background in broadcasting. She had no money. She had no great training. Uh, and yet, look what she was able to accomplish. It's, it's spectacular. And she was able to accomplish it because of her firm faith and her absolutely unswerving commitment to getting the job done. And uh, I suppose to answer your question, that's what I would tell people to look for. If you want to know where the truth lies, look for the people who are unwavering, uh, firm in their faith. Uh, don't look for credentials because credentials can be misleading. Just look for the people you trust. One of the things that I, I look to, too, are the guests that they have on their program. Uh, not only the teaching through the Mass and their homilies and um, other programs they have, but the guests, too, uh, are carefully chosen and people of truth. Um, I think especially of Bishop Strickland from Tyler, Texas. 
I think he is um, someone that I would look to and that I could listen to that I feel is approachable for those people and maybe for people around the country who don't feel uh, the comfort with their own pastors and bishops. Uh, we could uh, appeal to people like him and others who uh, are definitely uh, promoting the truth and staying true to the to the sacramental church that we love so much. Bishop Strickland has really been out front recently mm. in uh, making clear, uh, uncompromising, charitable but bold statements about what needs to be done in the wake of the McCarrick scandal. And he has really given me some hope the last few weeks mm -hmm. because he He's out there. He is. Uh, he's saying things that might not make him popular with some of the other bishops, and he obviously is willing to do that for the sake of the church. And he's very evangelical, which uh, is where my heart is. And I, I mm -hmm. think he really he really promotes um, relate the relationship with Jesus Christ, that personal relationship for his people. So they they're grounded in the faith. And the Holy Spirit is really using him, just like he used Mother Angelica in such a mighty way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we do need a Bishop Athanasius, don't we? Yes. At this we really time. do. Yeah. <laughs> we really do need one. Uh, you know, a one that has the courage, even if he's standing alone, to keep at it and to uh, continue to spread the faith that we all embrace and love. Mm -hmm. Rosemary, do you have a particular question? Well, I think it was somewhat covered by in Susie's question. Uh, I, <clears throat> I was going to say something about the secular media's role in um, withholding information, too. My experience with friends is that there's no common understanding of any of these problems. A lot of people in my parish don't even know there is a Catholic radio or a Catholic television. And you're, you're absolutely uh, starting at ground zero when you're talking to some people. And um, <clears throat> all different levels of knowledge. And I had another question about Pope Benedict, his restriction on Cardinal McCarrick. Do you think that that was part of the reason that he stepped down and retired from his role as Pope? Well, I don't think directly, um, but I think indirectly it may have been. I don't know. I'm not privy to his thinking. But he... Well, the complaint that you could make about Pope Benedict was that he was too gentle. And uh, he restricted Cardinal, then Cardinal McCarrick, but he made it informal uh, and didn't write it down, didn't publicize it, and McCarrick ignored it. And if a tougher disciplinarian might have done more, there did come a point where I think Pope Benedict, Pope Benedict recognized that the level of corruption in the Church was, uh, was more than he was equipped to manage, both by uh, 
mm-hmm. by virtue of the fact that he was getting older and losing energy. But also, I think he recognized his own strengths and weaknesses, and he was he always was more a professor rather than an administrator, and certainly not a disciplinarian. And he recognized that the church needed uh, firm discipline and better administration than he was equipped to, to provide. At least that's that's my best explanation. He, he he didn't really give many details himself, so that's the best I can offer. Phil, I have a question for you. Uh, can we segue a little bit? We were talking about Pope Benedict. Talk to us a little bit about Pope Francis. Sure. Um, I was originally very enthusiastic about Pope Francis when he was first elected, and he uh, captured so many people. We had what was what was known as the Francis effect. Uh, he excited people. He was acting in a way that we didn't expect a pope to act. He had a different style, and I thought all of this was fine. And then over the months that followed, I began to be confused by some of the things he said and then troubled by some of the things he said and ultimately disturbed and... Uh, and resistant. And what are examples when, of that, Philip? Give us some ex- concrete examples about some of the things that that you found troubling. Well, the most famous thing that he has said in his entire pontificate is that famous line, who am I to judge, yeah. uh, regarding homosexual activity. Well, you know, the answer to that, who are you to judge? You're the Pope. <laughs> I mean, we're... We're all called upon to judge, not not to judge people, not to damn them, not to condemn them, but to judge their activities. And, and as a pope, as any pastor, that's what you're called upon to do, to exercise your pastoral responsibility. So that that was the first shock uh, for me and, so, and for many others, and a lot of people still haven't recovered from it. And then he uh, used the Vatican as a sort of uh, conduit for a lot of political ideas that were associated with sort of left-wing politics, and that troubled me. Um, and it came to a head with the Synod on the Family and the document to Morris Letizia, where uh, he certainly seemed to be uh, intending to allow people who had divorced and remarried outside the church to receive communion, which is a a break with church teaching, and it's a break not on some little side issue, but on our understanding. It's a break with our understanding of the Eucharist and of marriage, and it's hard to think of two things more central to the Catholic faith. So that was the point at which I really uh, decided that we have a problem on our hands. How about the personnel that he surrounded himself with? For all his image to the public as a very merciful, Pope Francis is, in fact, in his style, very authoritarian. And he has surrounded himself with people who agree with him. And some of those people are tainted. He's, he has several people who he has promoted, like uh, Theodore McCarrick, um, who are who have been on the wrong side of the sex abuse scandal. Either they have been accused of abuse themselves, or they have been 
flagrantly negligent in failing to to crack down on abuse by their subordinates. Uh, And then there's a a pack of what I might call yes-men, so that when we had this, when the Vatican scheduled this conference that was our subject for the day, um, it was really a public relations exercise. The, The conversation was restricted um, so that w- there was no discussion about the possible influence of homosexual networks in the Vatican. There was no discussion about McCarrick and how he had risen to power. There was no discussion about how to bring bishops uh, who had been negligent to account for their failures. It was it was a very sanitized process, and that's become more or less the norm for this papacy. I, um, you know, I, I second your, uh, your analysis of Pope Francis. I was absolutely delighted. I thought, my goodness, it's going to bring a little bit of a, a different viewpoint. Uh, and now to my friends, I say, don't cry for me, Argentina. The truth is I never left you. <laughs> uh, and and uh, that is in public uh, about uh, what I will say among my Catholic friends. I can I can go a little bit further. It, Philip, I I think for people to understand perhaps the crisis we're in, uh, I think you as an author have been uh, incredibly good uh, writing your first book about Boston and then you've written many others and the last one I'm sure not your last book but your most recent book uh, The Smoke of Satan could we get into why you wrote that particular book uh, and what was your main objective when you wrote it uh, what were you trying to say, and who were you trying to reach? Those are good questions. It's a book, frankly, I didn't want to write. It's a unique book in this respect. I didn't want to write it, and the publisher didn't want to publish it. We both felt that we had to, despite our reluctance. We had to because we felt this was a message that's absolutely essential for people to hear. And the message is, well, as the title suggests, the title of Smoke of Satan, as you probably know, refers to a famous talk by Pope Paul VI about the misinterpretation of Vatican II. And Pope Paul VI said he was afraid that the smoke of Satan had entered the house of God and was obscuring people's minds so that they were subject to all sorts of confusion. And my argument in the book is that that's what's happened to our church in the years since Vatican II, and we're seeing it come to a head now, a crisis that has been building since that time. And my analysis is that the most uh, deadly part of that crisis is the failure of church leaders to be honest in assessing and telling the truth, so that for years and years we've had... uh, pastors and bishops and cardinals who have been promoted because of their ability to paper over conflicts rather than dealing with them manfully. 
to uh, pretend that everything is going well in the church when very clearly we're in a time of of, of, of severe problems in the church. And someone said earlier, what we really need is a Bishop Athanasius, and, and that's so true. If we had... I just hope that that bishops or or priests who might someday be bishops recognize how the laity would embrace them, how we would love them and support them if they were bold and manful and courageous in telling the truth and, and insisting on reform. Well, I totally agree. Now, the pathway to do that for our listeners, perhaps we could lay out a yellow brick road uh, for our, our listeners. And uh, I would say prayer, consecration to Our Lady. Uh, you, you know, we have Our Lady and we have the Petrine. Uh, and it's the Petrine uh, that we are dealing with right now. And personally, uh, although I wait for the approval of the church on any apparition, I think Our Lady is devotion to Our Lady and Our Lady's appearances seem to be much higher as we develop this entire scandal that is affecting the faith, uh, it, it, the hierarchy, the and our children especially. You know, children are are very interesting because they can pick up the phony right away. Uh, and, and many of them, I'm afraid, will be turned off uh, to our beautiful faith because of what's happening uh, on the Petrine side of, uh, uh, of our faith and uh, the absolute cover-up and the absolute inability to articulate anything other than scorn uh, for people who have an honest uh, desire to promote the faith uh, and to uncover the scandal and correct it as best they can. Uh, and as you know, if you're scorned enough, you will do one of two things. You will become cynical or you will drop out. And, and I think we're seeing that within much of the laity. They're becoming cynical or they are dropping out, and I think that's evidenced by low church attendance. And, of course, we have butterflies for Catholic education, so we've had no catechesis probably for 45 to years. 50 years, and uh, they, unless they are with a solid Catholic family, um, have nothing to base their, their thoughts on. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to you for the next three minutes and tell us a path to go down for this yellow brick road that we're taking. Well, again, I wish I had all the answers, but I don't. I will say that, uh, there are several things that I think one can do, and also there are things that one shouldn't do. And in, in my book, The Smoke of Satan, the last section is devoted to do's and don'ts. Uh, in which I give some practical suggestions. Uh, once again, the number one suggestion is to pray, and pray a lot, and make a habit of prayer. Have, have, uh, 
have a plan of life so that your day is revolving around prayer. Get to Mass, at, obviously, at, at least every Sunday, but try to get to Mass every day. Um, I am very enthusiastic about uh, recommending the Liturgy of the Hours, which is a part of the official Liturgy of the Church. Mm-hmm. It's not just for a priest and religious. And if you start praying the Liturgy of the Hours, you start noticing that you're living with the rhythms of the liturgical calendar, and you're much more thinking along the uh, thinking with the mind of the church. So prayer above all, prayer first of all. And then recognizing the urgency of the situation that uh, there are times when we can all coast along, uh, taking it easy, and there are times when we're called to extraordinary action. And this is one of the times we're called to extraordinary action. And you can see the evidence of that all around you every time you go to church and you see well first of all you see the empty pews but second before and after you you see how the people who are most enthusiastic most committed to their faith are the ones who are most upset um the most demanding of of a reform because these are the people who are most heavily invested and these are the people who recognize that it's not simply a matter of it's not only a matter of children being abused, although that's horrible enough. It's also a matter of scandal and sacrilege, sacrilegious use of of, uh, of a priest who should be a sacred person. Uh, and so these are the people who are lighting the way and uh, and need leadership and need help and need support. And if you're one of those people, and I say you need support, you have to find support. That is, you can't do it by yourself. You have to find like-minded people who will pray with you, who will work with you, who, if you have young children, who will, uh, you know, your children can play together and you can be uh, relaxed with each other and honest with each other uh, and support each other. And you together can go to your pastor and say, uh, these are the things that we really need from the church. And again, you ask politely, but you are demanding. We are demanding. We have every right to demand that our pastors provide us with the sacraments and with the ministerial help that they are committed to. They're morally obligated to give us. So there's no reason to be bashful about asking for that. Find your friends, find the people who think the way you do, and make common cause with them and really try to make a difference because uh, it's on the line now and it's on the line for for our salvation but for the future of the church and particularly for our children. Well, I would highly recommend to our audience to uh, purchase the book, The Smoke of Satan. Read it. uh, Read it care of, then reread it (laughs) and then pass it along to somebody else. Perhaps your pastor might want to read it. I I laugh because, again, I'm in the Archdiocese of Chicago, and uh, uh, we we have some difficulties here that perhaps some of our other listeners do not have. But I would highly recommend uh, your books, uh, and it's been an honor to be with you. Just as a quick aside, uh, Cardinal Pell, from Australia was just imprisoned. And Mm -hmm. uh, I have always uh, 
I've always admired Cardinal Powell. I, I, I uh, have had a difficult time thinking that he would be involved or would cover up anything. Do you have any thoughts and we could edit this out if we need to because we're down to a minute and 20 some seconds, but do you have any thoughts on Cardinal Powell? Well, I've learned the hard way not to assume that anyone is innocent. You never know. But I can say that the case against Cardinal Pell is absolutely shot through, full of holes, and it's astonishing that any court, any decent court in the world, would find him guilty on the basis of one witness, no corroborating evidence, and the witness's story contained a number of contradictions and a number of, uh, of flat-out impossibilities, so that it's not just that others are saying they don't believe that Cardinal Pell did what he's accused of doing. They're saying it is physically impossible that he could have done what he was mm. accused of doing. So it's an astonishing verdict. Yes, I'd, I couldn't, I'd, uh, again... Uh, nothing would surprise me within this papacy. Nothing would surprise me. Uh, I think, uh, you know, you're talking with three ladies who have uh, been around the block, if you will, uh, through good times and bad times uh, within the church, within the pro-life culture, within the the entire uh, avenue, if you will, of uh, and and we've we've stayed the course. And I would uh, uh, just say it's an honor to have interviewed you. I have always been impressed with your your writings. I didn't realize you came from Heritage. Uh, uh, foundation in your early days, and I did not know that you were a graduate of Harvard University, all of which uh, are very impressive, but you are far more impressive. Thank you, Phil. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. on WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio. For more information about this program or to purchase additional CD copies, please call us at 224-206-8455. That's 224-206-8455. Or visit us online at wsfiradio.org. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease.